On July 24th, 1998, Saving Private Ryan was released in movie theaters nationwide. Um, I'm a movie guy. That opening scene in that movie is probably one of the best that's ever been made. But July 24th, 1998 was a defining moment in my life as I went and saw this movie in the theaters. I went with some friends, but most importantly, I took my grandfather with me who had served in World War II aboard the USS Missouri for the United States Navy. Now, if you know somebody that served in World War II, uh, have a family member that served there, then you probably have experienced the same thing that I experienced. I had read about World War II, I had studied it, I had written papers on it, I had done research on it, but I never had a conversation with my grandfather where he would elaborate on anything that took place in that war. Nothing that he experienced, nothing that, that he went through. Uh, he just said, that, and would end the conversation at this, is that he did what he was supposed to do in that moment and left it at that and then moved on without any other details. And so I invited him to go with us to this movie. And so we began to sit there and the movie began. And I just remember his reaction at the opening of that scene there as they're portraying D-Day. But then three seats down from us was another gentleman about his same age, also experiencing the very same reaction. And, and there was weeping and there were tears and, and, and it really kind of progressed throughout the entirety of the movie until its conclusion. So the movie ends, the lights come up and, and we're kind of getting our stuff ready, preparing to leave. And then my grandfather slides down to where that other gentleman was. And for the next 15 minutes there in the movies, they began to talk about their shared experiences of serving during World War II. They began to share stories, men that they had served with. They began to have a conversation about what it was like, the things that they went through, the things that they experienced. It got to the point where people were coming in, they're trying to clean up the theater, and they finally asked us to leave. We walked back out into the lobby where they carried on the conversation for another 30, 45 minutes. And, and I just sat there. Never once did I ask any questions. I just sat and I listened. And it was in that moment of hearing their stories and hearing their experiences and the things that they went through that I was faced with an understanding of what American freedom actually is and what it cost to have that very freedom. It changed my perspective because I had spoken and listened with two guys who had fought for that very freedom. It was a defining moment. It was life-altering for me and changed my perspective and gave me a, a new vantage point of American freedom. Well, I can think of nothing better than here on July 4th as we exercise our freedom of worship to lift up the name of Jesus than for us to begin to understand what it actually means as we boldly and powerfully declare the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ as his church, of what it means to be free in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, and he begins to get to this point and begins to discuss what it means to have liberty in Christ. Because the church had begun to forget and began to lose sight of what it meant, of what salvation by grace through Jesus actually was. He says in verse 7 to them, he says, you were running a good race, but who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? 
the writer of Hebrews says it like this when we begin to lose our focus. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, we're in a race, church, and we're running this race with the message of the freedom and the liberty that we have in Christ. The church in Galatians here failed to understand how exactly to live in light of that freedom. They were living as freed, not as freed captives, but as slaves. And this happened because they were listening to false teachers. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to understand and begin to gain a stronghold on what it means to live in light of the liberty of Christ. As Paul gives us three things here for us in these passages we'll look at. The first is this this morning. It is to live in freedom. How are you to live in the liberty of Christ? You're to live in freedom. Look at verse 1 of Galatians 5. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. A lot of scholars and theologians will point to the book of Galatians as the Magna Carta, if you will, of Christian liberty. I would argue then, if that's the case, that Galatians 5 verse 1 has to be considered the key verse in this letter that Paul is writing. See, Paul is wanting his readers to live free because Christ has saved them to be free, and it's in that freedom that they're called to live. So as he's giving this sentence here in verse 1, it's serving as a transition between kind of sections here in this letter. He's just discussed in chapter 3 and verse 1 through chapter 4 and verse 31 this freedom that they're called to. He calls them out for living as slaves and not as sons, for reverting to slavery and to idols and to the law and to the elemental forces of this world. He illustrates this idea by referencing Isaac and Ishmael to teach them that as Christians, we're children that are free. We're children of a promise that we are walking miracles, born of the Holy Spirit of God, not children of slavery. And so in light of this, Paul is saying, do not live or submit to slavery. He says in, later on in verse 13 that we'll see, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. So because then Christ has liberated us to be free, our posture should be one that rests and rejoices in him. We should rejoice in Christ because we've come to this final resting place of liberty and freedom in him. We're not under condemnation. We don't have to submit our lives and be enslaved to the idols and to the sin of this world. See, the Exodus is such a beautiful picture of what Christ has done and how he has delivered us. See, Jesus liberated us not from Egypt, but liberated us from sin's awful slavery. It's why Jesus told us that he brought us into his kingdom. And when he brought us into his kingdom, he says this in John 8, 36. He says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So the question then becomes this. If we know this as the church, we reference it, we discuss it, we talk about it. But we're not glorifying Christ deeply because of it. 
then why not? Why not? I think one of the reasons and one of the answers has to be that we have forgotten how terrible the tyranny and slavery of sin was in our lives. I read a book by a guy named Thomas Watson called The Doctrine of Repentance, and he said this. He said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. See, the gospel for us is not awesome unless we see the awfulness of our previous condition. I've used this illustration before in our college ministry, and I'll use it here, but I think one of the great gifts of God to humanity is a hot uh, donut from Krispy Kreme. Okay, thank you to the amen. So, so here's the thing. So many of us have had donuts from other places. You know, the, the store-bought, you know, grocery store, I won't throw out a grocery store chain, but you know, the, a grocery store, or maybe you were desperate for a donut and you bought one from, a, you know, a gas station somewhere, God help your soul. Um, but this is a thing. So you eat that donut, and it's like, okay, it's a donut. But you have a hot and ready Krispy Kreme donut, fully ready to go, hot off the press. Then the donut over here, you're not going back to that donut, folks. I don't care that we don't have a Krispy Kreme located within a five-mile radius of us. I'll drive to Millennia or Winter Park or Tennessee if I need to to get a hot and ready Krispy Kreme donut. Why? Because I've tasted it, I've experienced it, and I don't want another donut. I want this one. And so for us as believers, what Paul is saying here is that you have been set free And because you have been set free and you have experienced the fullness of the gospel that has liberated you in Christ, then you don't need to go back to the awfulness of the tyranny and slavery of sin. You've had the hot and ready gospel. You don't need the store-bought, works-based, gas station donut over here of religion. And so Paul is referencing this. He understands this. And what we need to understand is what Christ has done so that we then can adore him and honor him and revere him and stand in awe of him to a point where we don't return to slavery. It's to understand it like this. As believers, we are freed objectively, technically, legally, from the guilt of sin. But far too often what we struggle with is to be free subjectively, experientially, daily, from the grip of sin. See, objectively, if you've been around church a long time, you know this, Romans 8, 1, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to live with this sense of being unacceptable to God because the finished work of Christ has made us acceptable. That was a perfect substitution and sacrifice so we can rest in his work. So we can't revert back to this works-based righteousness. But subjectively or experientially, we need to learn how to live free from the power of sin. And this is what sanctification is. So we are free, but we don't always live free. We're in need of becoming what we already are. 
And that's just simply, you know, you hear that word sanctification a lot. It's just living as a free, justified person, trusting in Christ alone. So we wrestle with our idols that continue to tempt us. We wrestle with the guilt of the law, which tries to condemn us. But we have to keep coming back to the gospel because Christ has made us righteous. So just a question for you this morning. Do you believe that you're free objectively from condemnation? Do you believe that you are accepted in Christ completely and perfectly in him? And if your answer to that is yes, then subjectively, are you living out this new identity and not reverting back to the slavery of idols and works-based religion? See, for the Galatians, objectively, they were not walking out this truth because they believed that they needed to contribute to their own salvation. They were living in a Jesus plus something else type of faith. And, and, and trying to add to it and make it more and, and so that they could then do something to earn that salvation. But the good news here this morning, church, is this, is that you and I, we stand accepted today in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing, there's not one single thing that you and I can do that will make us more or less accepted by him if we're in Christ Jesus. And that's what liberty is. This is what it's all about. And so Paul opens the book of Galatians with this reality in chapter one and verse four when he says that Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. He came to deliver us from the grip of this age, the flesh, the elemental spirits, the idolatry, the evil one. Just as Israel got out of Egypt objectively, they still struggled with kind of this slave mentality in our hearts. And it's the same thing that we're wrestling with. We're we're kind of believing that we are free, but we're struggling to live out that freedom. Here's how that happens. It happens because we take our eyes off of Christ and our worship is then hindered because of that. It's blocked And we are focusing on other things. And so anytime that we stop adoring Christ as our redeemer, it's gonna cause us to cease to grow spiritually. Growth in our lives happens as we continue to focus on the glory of Christ Jesus because he's the one who's made us righteous. And so because of that, this is why Paul says to stand firm in that. When he says to stand firm in that freedom, he's really safeguarding us from submitting to legal bondage But we'll see later on, he's also trying to safeguard us against the danger in the opposite direction of just kind of this abuse of freedom. So he's essentially saying, keep it between these guardrails. He goes on, he says, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. This yoke that he's talking about, as we'll see here in in verse two and on, is this false teaching. It's somebody saying that you're not free and that you have to do this to keep the law so that you can be free. For the church in Galatians, it was the idea of circumcision, that they needed to submit to circumcision and adopt the Old Testament law as a means to salvation. That was their slavery. But the gospel frees us from that condemnation. So don't put on the yoke that says that you're not free in Christ. False teachers are all around us today. A real test of a teacher is whether or not they, they teach like a Pharisee or whether they come to us with the gospel of Christ. Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 4, that the Pharisees try to tie up heavy loads 
with their list of rules and put a yoke on the hearer. And that type of teaching crushes people. It's a lifeless teaching. It offers no hope and it offers no security. But Paul now comes in and he takes people to Christ as their final resting place. And in Christ is where we find our peace. In Christ is where we find our liberty. It's where we find our joy. It's where we find our security in that. Where is it that you're placing your hope? Is it a lifeless hope of continuing to try to do? Or is it in the eternal hope of Christ? So Christ has freed us in his atoning work. It's an extraordinary freedom. It's a freedom that should lead us to rest in him, to rejoice in him. It should cause us to live in the manner and the way that he's calling us to do and ultimately to not submit to the yoke of slavery. So we should live in freedom. Secondly, this morning, I want us to see that we should run in truth. We should run in truth. Galatians 5, verses 2 through 12 says this. It says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. See, the Galatians were not running in the truth. They were listening to a message, and the message was one of bondage. And so Paul now comes in in these verses and begins to confront the false teachers. And he's going to kind of sustain this argument. As you see, Paul gets kind of angrier and angrier as he goes on until verse 12 comes, and he just kind of ends with a bang on this. And so again, the big problem is in the necessity of adding anything to the gospel. And for the Galatians, it was the necessity of circumcision and keeping the law. So for Paul, what this symbolized was this religion of human achievement instead of a religion of divine grace. And his argument is that human achievement in religion is slavery. And so he begins to just point out some things here of these false teachers. He he says there in verse 2 that if you're going to accept this message, and if you're going to receive this message from a false teacher, then you are viewing Christ as insufficient. Christ is insufficient because salvation by human achievement sees Christ as not doing enough. But as we know and as we sing about and as we declare week in and week out as we gather together, the work of Jesus is perfect. You can't improve upon it, add to it, take away from it. John Calvin said that whoever wants half of Christ loses the whole. So you begin to view Christ as insufficient. Also, if you begin to receive these teachings, Paul goes on in verse 3, says you then have to obey all of the law. It's kind of this idea of gradualism. You're going to start here, 
but then you're just gonna keep adding and the goalpost is going to continue to move because there's going to be this all-encompassing obligation that you have to do every single thing and follow every single rule and regulation that's been laid out before you. But then further in verse four, if you begin to accept this message, what you're doing is turning away from the doctrine of grace. Now, there are some that like to argue and proof text this verse here in Galatians 5, 4 to say that you can lose your salvation. That is not what this text is saying. It's not what Paul is getting at here. We can read multiple other texts throughout the New Testament and see precisely what the salvation by grace and by faith alone in Christ Jesus is all about. When you begin to look at the context here, what Paul is getting at and talking about is falling away from the doctrine of grace. That if you believe that salvation is by the law, you have abandoned the belief that salvation is by grace. So you can't have it both ways. Either salvation is by divine accomplishments, that Christ died for our sins, or it is by human achievement, which is your good works and the things that you have done to reach that place. So, so it, it can't be both and. It's one or the other. It's either a divine accomplishment or it's human achievement. And Paul is saying there, if you receive the message from false teachers, you're turning away from the doctrine of grace, which is that it is by divine accomplishment in which we have been saved. But then he goes on in verse five and he says that if you accept the message of these teachers, then what you are losing is hope. That you are going to lose hope. See, righteousness is ours now in Christ Jesus. But we are all awaiting as his church our future glorification in Christ. Either the the day that we breathe our final breath or the day that Christ returns. And that's the hope that we have and the hope that continues to lead us and guide us and fuel us as his church. See, we're declared righteous, but we're awaiting that day. And how do we get this hope? See, we receive the hope by trusting in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. It's why we sing that old hymn that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And it's that hope that keeps us running. And until then, we will live as liberated people by faith, eagerly awaiting for that day. See, Paul is saying here, the circumcision doesn't matter. Like, that's not what is important. We, we have the virtues or marks of a justified believer through faith, hope, and love, but a works-based righteousness. This idea of salvation by the things that we do, it only leads to fear and to bondage and despair. It is not liberating. It is instead a, a being placed in our own jail. So I'll contrast it like this for you. Those of you that work or you have a job, At some point in your life, you have worked for a supervisor or for a boss that came to you and was difficult. Yes? Okay. We had amens in the first service on that. Um, Just hope their boss wasn't in here. But think about it. You're given a task to do. You receive that task. You then work that task, yet the whole time that you are working that task, you are sitting there saying to yourself, I hope this will be good enough for him or her, and I hope that they accept it. 
to the point where you work in such fear and then you turn in that whatever it is that you were asked to do with that same fear, just awaiting the phone call to your office or the email from your boss that says, hey, I need to see you. To which in that point, then you just live with this idea of I'm going to the boss's office. What have I done wrong? Some of you are like, not only have I lived that, Tim, I'm living it now. And, 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 you, and you understand that. That's what works-based salvation is all about. It is the constant fear of, well, did I do enough here? Okay, did, did, I, did I put enough in the offering plate? I, I, I drove past this person on the street and they were asking for money, but I didn't stop to help them. So now I need to turn around and I need to go help somebody else to, to make up for that because I, I gave them the cold shoulder. You know, have I memorized enough scripture? Did, did I read my Bible enough? I showed up for small group and I didn't really say anything in small group. So now I need to like go talk about Jesus with somebody else, you know, and, and just so that I've done that. And we live in this constant state of, did I do enough? And that is a fear and a bondage that is not the gospel because the gospel is not a message of us sitting around wondering every single second and every single day of our lives saying, did I do enough? Yet instead, the gospel is knowing that Christ did it all. And because of that, I'm gonna live in light of that freedom and live in light of the doctrine of grace and not succumb to the false teaching of false prophets and the tyranny and the slavery of sin and works-based do-ism religion that will not lead to anything. It leads to lifelessness, not to life. And so Paul is just making this abundantly clear. And Paul's message to the false teacher here and to the church is saying that the false teacher's message is ultimately empty. It is an empty message because nothing that they're saying will accomplish anything. But the gospel is a full message. It's a full message. Those that know me know that one of the things that, that I like whenever I'm doing something, um, you know, task-related or work-related, that anywhere I go, there is a 100% chance that I've got a Coke Zero with me. And I will carry that with me. And, and man, people clapping for the Coke Zero. All right. Um, let's get together. And, uh, and so I'll carry that, that with me, whether it, it's in, you know, at breakfast when I got like the big cup with me or whether it's a can and, and all of this. And so I was doing some work around the house the other day, and, and I had my Coke Zero with me. So I set my Coke Zero down and went and started to, to handle and do the other things that I needed to do. And so then I came back and realized, man, I need to sit down, you know, and just kind of chill for a little bit. And so I went to pick up my Coke Zero. So in our house, I'm not the only one that drinks Coke Zero. My son, who I love, also drinks Coke Zero. And so as I sit down in my chair and then pick up my can to drink my Coke Zero after I've done the work that I've done, I go to tilt it back, and you know what was in there? Nothing. Nothing. And it was so disappointing. And so I looked at Jacob, and I said, what happened to my Coke Zero? And he said, I drank it. And so then I looked at him, and I, now, granted, I could have gotten up 
to go get myself another one out of the refrigerator, but I looked at him and I said, I need you to go get me another one. So the liberation of Jacob did not really happen in that moment. Is, uh, and so no, so he went and got me a full one. And see, what happens is, is so often we hear the message of a false teaching and we get so wrapped up in thinking that the gospel is so good. Surely it's not all that. And so I need to do this or do that. And we continually go to that well. And the more we go to that well, it continues to be empty. I'm telling you here, church, the more you come to this and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will never come up empty. It will always be full and it's always available to you. Stop listening to the voice of men who are adding something to what Christ has done and simply immerse yourself in the things that Christ has said he has done and is going to do that is written here in his word. So Paul just continues to kind of lay out here all what these false teachers do, that they hinder obedience to the truth, that they're false messengers, that they contaminate others, that they're going to be judged. But he also talks about the idea of persecution in verse 11. Because here's the reality. The cross of Jesus offends people. It offends people. People would rather make much of themselves and preach a salvation by works system than to stand up and to brag on Jesus and and to point people to the cross and point to Jesus as the only way. That's the world around us. See, the cross, as Paul said, it's either a stumbling block or it's the power of God for salvation in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. You either boast in it or you mock it and you reject it. But why does it offend Here's why it offends, is because it crushes human pride. So thankful for that reality in my life. Because the cross just obliterates the religion of human achievement. And for this crowd that Paul is writing to, it's wiping out the idea that you are saved by keeping the law of Moses. So his argument just is summarized in this way, trusting Christ's atoning work for salvation. Find your righteousness in him alone and resist anyone and everyone who would point you somewhere other than to Christ. And then finally, this morning, live in freedom, run in truth. And then the third thing, if we're going to live in light of the liberty of Christ, is that we're to love in service. Love in service. Look at verse 13 and 15 of Galatians 5. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Paul's wanting to do two things here. And first, he's wanting us to avoid when it comes to Christian freedom, legalism, this idea that you're trying to earn acceptance before God by works. But then in these last verses, he's wanting us to avoid the idea of license, which is just the misapplication of the doctrine of grace. And so he's addressing this. He talks about there is a moral law that we're justified people that are now free to live as Christ is seeking us to live. And to be a part of that freedom is to be free from sin slavery and then to be released into that freedom to love and serve others for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. And so he's laying this out here. So he says, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You know, it's not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom from sin. And so our Christian freedom is a freedom that is about serving others and pursuing godliness and holiness in Christ. But then he says, also allow that freedom 
to lead you to serve one another through love and to love your neighbor as yourself. So what Paul does here is he puts a paradox out on the table because that word serve in the Greek is actually the word for slave. So he has said, don't be a slave. And now he comes in and says, but you're free to be a slave. So here's why that is. Because the Galatians, they were free from bondage and under grace. But Paul says, now they are free to love and serve others. And in what Paul is exhorting here, there's a fuel to it. It's not for them to then figure out how is it that I am going to serve and love these people. Because Paul goes on in verse 16 of Galatians 5. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. See, Paul understood and knew that they weren't to try to figure out how they're to love and serve other people, but it's that the Holy Spirit now lives and resides in us as believers and as the church. And it's the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ Jesus up from the dead. So it's not us trying to figure out how can we live, love, and serve others for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. It's us understanding that as we walk out of here, that we walk out empowered, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So it's not about us and what we're able to do, but all about what Jesus can and does do and is doing in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. This is what this means. And so the call then is a call to freedom and a call to oneness in Christ as a community of believers. See, we're not as followers of Jesus to then just move into isolation. We were brought out of bondage to live in a community of faith with one another. The American way is so often about individuality and autonomy and kind of this, you know, living this anonymous life sometimes. But that's not what it is in the church. Christianity and Christian freedom is about living in community. Christ has saved us and liberated us so that we could be committed to him and to his church to love and serve one another so that then the world around us will see the light of Christ and hear the message of the gospel and see as we're loving and serving one another in that community. That call to freedom means that we're free from using people, that we're free from seeking approval from people, that we're free from self-promotion. But instead, we are free to live out of the overflow of a heart that has been set free by Christ to serve others, to love others. So I want to close with this story. As I was preparing for this message and, and, and kind of spending some time, I kind of found myself, you know, in one of these rabbit holes of just kind of reading a lot of different things and a lot of different stories uh, along the way. And I came across one that, that just resonated with me. And where God has us today. But it's about a soldier from World War II served with the, with the Japanese intelligence. His name was Lieutenant Hiro Anata. Lieutenant Hiro Anata was dropped in December of 1944 into an island in the Philippines overrun by Allied forces where he would fled up to the hills with his squadron and, and they kind of, you know, hid themselves in the jungle there seeking to fight in this war. They would do their reconnaissance and and seek things out, try to understand their enemy, and then they would seek to attack in different places. They would burn crops, and, and, and this was how they lived until eventually, one by one, members of their unit were all killed off except for himself and three other people. 
They continued to fight. They continued to burn crops. They continued to attack. They continued to study the enemy, seeking whatever they could possibly do to win the war at hand, making themselves almost invisible in the jungle. What they didn't know, though, was that as they were fighting on August 15th, 1945, the Japanese surrendered and the war was over. Yet they kept fighting and they kept working. Five years later, they found leaflets all around them declaring that the war was over, that they could come out, that they they should surrender. They looked at each other and all thought the same thing. They had all been trained that anything that didn't come from their commanding officer was a ploy by the enemy and a tactic used to try to to capture them and, and, and hold on to them. So they continued to fight. Five years in, one of them, he was out. The others were sleeping. He bolted, surrendered, became free. Five years later, another one did the same thing. 17 years after that, two of them remained, and that one was killed in a skirmish on the island. It wasn't until 30 years later when someone found Lieutenant Anata's commanding officer and found where he was and brought that commanding officer to him for the commanding officer to tell him that the war was over and that he could then come out of the jungle. It wasn't until that day, 30 years later, that Lieutenant Anata walked out of that jungle, still with his military uniform on, and met Ferdinand Marcos, the president of the Philippines, who then pardoned him and set him free upon his surrender. 30 years after the fact, he was still fighting a war that was over. I was reading in an article in the New York Times about him. As they interviewed him, they said, why did you keep doing or what kept you going in all of that? He said nothing but accomplishing my duty. He was fueled by the work that he had to do, by the work that he needed to do. Yet there were leaflets around him that said the war is over. Surrender and be free. Don't you know this morning, church, that the leaflets are falling all around us today? That says the war is over. That Christ has set you free. That there is liberty in Jesus because of the gospel. The saying that the work is finished, that Christ took the hostility, that Christ was nailed to the cross, that it is done and finished. So you can surrender, you can come out of the bondage and the tyranny of works-based righteousness and the slavery of sin and be set free in Jesus' name. Paul has said it here, that Christ has set us free. So let us live in freedom, resting and rejoicing in Christ and Christ alone. Let us run in the truth, resisting any voice that would want to add to the gospel and the message of false teachers. And let us then serve and love others for that very gospel to the glory of God Almighty. Do you want to be free. 
So with heads bowed and eyes closed here this morning, I just wanna give that invitation of freedom to someone in the room who has never prayed that prayer. Who has never surrendered to the gospel of Jesus. If that's you and you've heard us here today and and from the worship and the testimonies and from God's word here today, you can have that freedom. You can call on the name of Jesus and just simply pray this prayer after me. Jesus, I need to be set free. I've tried it my way. I need the way. I need you to rescue me, to forgive me, to restore me and liberate me. Thank you, Jesus, for your freedom. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I just wanna invite you. There's cards that are there in the pew in front of you or it's there on the welcome card through our QR code. For those of you that are watching at home, you can just click a box that says, I decided to surrender my life to follow after Christ. We wanna know that, we wanna celebrate with you. But for everyone else in the room, maybe God is just speaking to you and it's just been revealed to you that you're not living in light of the liberty that you have in Christ. And Jesus just wants to come and meet you and set you free here in this place. So I just wanna pray for us that we would call on the name of Jesus he would hear us and set us free here this morning. So Father, would you come and work and move in power in the hearts and lives of every man and woman that sits in this place today? God, would we see and know the freedom that we have in Christ and would we live in light of that freedom to the glory of your name? We are calling on your name, Jesus. Hear us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.